Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Well, good morning, church family. It's good to be with you. You glad to be here? Awesome. It's great to see you all. As this is kind of a surreal uh, moment now, because I'm, I'm standing here, but last week I was someplace totally different. I wasn't here. I was in Cincinnati, and I get the delight of passing on to you an experience that I had, which is so fun. This is, this is I love what we do as a church. Um, but guys, last few weeks, I, I wasn't here. I wasn't on this stage. I was, I was actually standing on a portable stage in the middle of the cafeteria of Mount Auburn Preparatory Academy in Cincinnati, Ohio, with our newest church plant. And it was wild to look across the room like, this didn't even exist two months ago. And last Sunday, there was 100 people gathered in that space. They too have a baptism service coming up with three people set to get baptized soon. Is that awesome? That's awesome. And uh, I, I told you a story a few weeks ago. I told you about Trevor. Do you guys remember the, the story that I shared about Trevor who just gave his life to Christ? Well, three weeks ago, gave his life to Christ. I met him after the service uh, and guys, it was, it was mind-blowing. I, I, I shook his hand and immediately, I think this probably freaked him out. He's 18 years old. I'm like, dude, our church man, we've been praying for you. Like we, we prayed for you. Like 800 some people prayed for you. And he just looks me right back. I thought he was going to go, that's terrifying. He's like, no, no, no. He goes, this whole thing, like coming to know Christ, being brought into this church family has changed my life. He's like, thank you. Tell them thank you for praying for me as he's one of the three baptisms. It's just so, so cool. And what made that, that opportunity, just being able to stand on that stage to, to pray with them, to open the scriptures with them and encourage them was not just being able to look into the room and see people from Cincinnati and students at the university there and go, okay, like, I don't even know who you are. It was actually just the real delight of being able to look at the 26 people that left here to go help start that work. People that I just got to call them what they are as I was in their presence, they're my heroes. 26 people that left the familiarity of this city, of their friends, family, maybe in the state of Iowa, all those things, and moved into an unfamiliar city where God was already at work. There are other great churches there, but they saw a unique need in reaching the campus of UC and wanted to see God use them to do a, a sweet new work there. And they're seeing it, but I wanted to just encourage them because at work, I mean, it, it's hard and you need to remain persistent and consistent in it. And, and we wanted to see God establish something that will last for a hundred years and beyond and just proclaiming the greatness of Jesus. And they're just on the, the front end of it, trying to break fresh ground. And so just to pray for them was really cool. But one of the things that we track here as a church, we call it our sent list. Those 26 names are on it. There's 87 names on the sent list of people that in our eight years as a church have left this church family to go help establish a new church someplace else, either nationally or internationally, 87. And uh, last week you saw that there's four more now set to go out the door. So now we're, we're moving up, we're getting closer to 100, which is a milestone. That first 100, I can't wait to celebrate. And I mean that purposely, the first 100. As we say this all the time, we're a sent people. 
And that number, that 87 number, is just a reflection of that culture that we have, that we're a sent people, which doesn't mean that everybody is going to go. Everybody's going to get U-Hauls and jump on airplanes and, and move away from here. But as we're sending, as everyone leaves this place and feels sent back into their universities and classrooms and workplaces and neighborhoods with the gospel, there will be some who will pack up and go. And so that 87 reflects a culture that we have as a sent people that, yes, we will send some, but we're all sent. We all feel that, right? And that number that's a reflection of our culture is driven by this command in John 20, 21. When Jesus said, as the Father sent me, I also send you. Church, 39 times in the Gospel of John alone, Jesus uses the word sent to describe what the Father has done with him. If you want to look them up yourself, here they are. There's 39 references. Do we have them here, Holly? So you want some light reading today? Just go back and you can see all the times that Jesus says, I am sent by the Father. And now he's passing on to you. Hey, just like the Father sent me to accomplish a mission, so I am sending you to accomplish a mission. And last week, if you're open to John 17, just look back to verse 18. Jesus prayed this last week as Jordan covered this. He prayed, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I've now highlighted two of the 39 references where Jesus talks about being sent by the Father and then what that means for us. And so last week what we saw in John 17 is we saw Jesus praying for the protection and sanctification of literally the disciples that are right in front of him as he's praying for them as they're sent out. And now this week, it's so beautiful. He moves beyond praying for them, but he begins to see past them and through them to the people who are gonna come to trust in him through their witness, through their going, and he begins to pray for them. This is what he says in verse 20. I pray not only for these disciples in front of him, but also for those who believe in me through their word. I just want to pause as we jump into this text. Church, who's he praying for in verse 20? Us. Church, he's praying for us. At this moment, he begins praying for all Christians of all times and all places. And we just get this cool moment to eavesdrop into Jesus' prayer life. I mean, you can tell so much about a person and what they value by what they pray for. Like if I was to eavesdrop into your prayers, I'd probably realize that you care a lot about your family, you're really thankful for your health, and you're really thankful for the food in front of you. Right, that's like when we think about our prayers, sometimes like that's, that's as deep as we get, is like we just regularly pray for our food. That's what you value. That's what we value. Today we get to look at what Jesus values. What does he pray for when he prays? So if you're a note taker, I'm gonna give you just a summary of where we're going this morning and, and a little bit of a flyover and then we're gonna slow down and unpack this just bit for bit. But if you want a summary of what Jesus prays for, this is what he prays. 
Jesus is praying for God to do a work within us that is so great that the world will take notice and want the Jesus that we have. Jesus is praying for God to do a work within us that is so great that the world will take notice and want the Jesus that we have. Five times in these six verses, Jesus uses the word so that or that. He's wanting God to do something in us that will result in something else, that will result in something else. There's that's all over the place. This, so that this, this, that this would happen. And as I was spending time studying the scripture and seeing just a cyclical nature in his prayers, this picture emerged that I think helps summarize like, like what he's praying for. He's praying that God would do such a, a rich work within us. And you can put that picture up, Holly. But he's praying that God would do such a work within us through this rich relationship, this union with Christ that we have, that with that built as the foundation and now our vertical relationship with God reconciled, that that would move from grace that flows this direction to now grace that flows this direction. God would do such a great work within us, reconciling our vertical relationship with God and begin to reconcile all of our vertical, our horizontal relationships. And all of a sudden, all these previous divisions, these walls of division that seemed insurmountable before, divisions between nations and languages and races and socioeconomic groups and all of these things would just fade away as the grace of Jesus just brings together one family, one people that all share this in common, that I brought nothing into my relationship with God but my sin and I have been saved by grace, just like you and just like you and just like you and just like you. And that blood makes us a family, makes you my brother, makes you my sister. And this unity would then be so shocking, utterly unbelievable, that the world would take notice and want the Jesus that we have. So now I wanna just slow down and walk through each part of this just bit for bit, okay? Let's start first with the work that God wants to do in us that Jesus is praying for. Because for the vast majority of, of Christians, if I was asked to like, ask you to define your relationship with God, to describe your relationship with God. I think for the vast majority of Christians, the deepest answer you could probably give to that question would be, well, I have a relationship with Jesus. Now I'm setting you up because you may look at that and be like, isn't that a good answer? I thought that was a good answer. Guys, <laughs> I want to challenge that answer because, guys, we have so much more than just simply a relationship with Jesus. And that's why I want to highlight this, this phrase, the importance of understanding our union with Christ. Because when I talk about that, when I start going through that cycle, we start talking about the foundation of our union with Christ. I want you to understand like our union with Christ is this incredible miracle that takes place that when we place our trust in Jesus and find salvation in his name, that Jesus comes and dwells in us and us in him eternally with an inseparable bond brought together. And all of this, this union with Christ is meant to redefine everything about us. And this passage references, and maybe you can miss it if you're not looking for it, this passage actually references five times the beauty of our union with Christ and just laying a, a foundation. I want to just highlight these, these five references. The first one is in verse 21, and I have it in bold text behind me. 
It says this, may they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. May they also be in us. What he's saying there is, just as God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit have all enjoyed eternal perfect union with one another, Jesus is praying for us to crash the party and go right into the middle of it. That's why it should shock us when Jesus' disciples look at him and say, hey, Jesus, teach us to pray. And what he says to them is he says, start this way, pray our Father. This incredible relationship that Jesus has shared with the Father from the very beginning, he's now extending that privilege to us by grace. That's incredible. Here's the second reference to the beauty of our union with Christ in this text. It's in verse 22 then. He says this, I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. When Jesus came to the earth church, he revealed the glory of God to us that we could see in Jesus what God was like and what he cared about. We could see in Jesus God's goodness, his compassion, his desire for right, his desire for justice, his, his courage. We could see all of God in Jesus. And now Jesus is saying, hey, the glory that I have revealed to you, I'm now passing that on to you, and I want you to reflect God's glory as you walk in life by the power of the Spirit. That people would now begin to see in you what God is like, in your love for righteousness, goodness, your kindness, your mercy, your justice, your courage. The third and fourth references to our union with Christ are connected. There's a similar theme, and so I'll read them back to back. It's verses 23 and 26. Verse 23, though, starts with a union in Christ phrase, I am in them, and you are in me, so that they may be completely one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. I'm going to read that again. And that you have loved them as you have loved me. And then I'll read verse 26, which says something similar. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love that you have loved me with may be with them and I may be in them. I want to get you to, to dwell on this a little bit. Because we know that Jesus has a unique relationship with the Father, Right? We're not going to have that type of relationship with the Father. But understand what he is saying here. That when we trust Jesus for our salvation and are filled with the Holy Spirit and given the spirit of adoption, we are brought into the family of God and made co-heirs with Christ, as Romans 8 tells us. Understand this, that God loves us with the same love that he loves his son with. He loves us as he loves the son. That's what it means when we are made co-heirs with Christ and brought in as adopted children. Because that is incredible mercy, is it not? 
And the last reference to the beauty of our union with Christ is in, in verse 24. He says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me because you have loved me before the world's foundation. Before, in the beginning, in Genesis 1-1, God the Father, Christ the Son, the Holy Spirit, all eternally existing and eternally in glory. That was there before in the beginning. It's always been like that. But then Christ is sent on a mission. And for a season, he sets aside his glory, takes on the form of a slave, humbles himself, becomes a man, walks this earth, and even serves us the level of complete obedience by dying for us, dying a death on a cross. Philippians 2 tells us that for this reason, he is exalted. He's going back to the Father here. He's going back to his rightful place of glory where he deserves. And what he wants at this point, what he's praying for, is he wants those who have been united with him to be where he is. Do you see this, guys? This is what I mean when I say just saying that we have a relationship with Jesus doesn't do it justice. In this, these like six verses, it like doesn't do justice to say that, oh, we have a relationship with Jesus. So it's like, does that describe all the things I've just defined to you? Like if I take this into my marriage, right? And I say about my wife, you say, hey, tell me about your wife. I'd say, yeah, we have a relationship. It doesn't do the richness and the beauty of our marriage justice, guys. If I compare, I have a relationship with my wife with the words, the two of us have become one flesh and nothing but death will ever separate us. If I say to you that as I think of my wife and I describe what we have, I say our hearts are bound up with each other. Like I no longer see myself as an autonomous being because I'm aware that as I make decisions, it not only affects me, it affects her. And vice versa, if my wife has a day where she's grieving, I'm grieving with her. If there's a day where she's happy, regardless of what's going on in my life, I'm happy. I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. There's nothing in this world like the richness of my relationship with my bride. And yet church, I'm telling you, that in comparison to the union that we have with Christ, there really is no comparison. The union that we have with Christ is a billion times richer, deeper, and more beautiful than my marriage with my wife will ever be. And we get to see that on display. I mean, that's the beauty of baptisms. You get to see this union in Christ on display. This is what Romans 6, 4, and 5 says about baptism and our union with Christ. He says, therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, which is all symbolized in baptism. As you go under the waters, it's like you're, you're dying, you're going into the grave. And you come out of the waters, you've been raised into new life. He says that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. We have been united with Christ and no power of hell will ever rip us apart. It's not just a relationship, guys. We've been united with Christ.
but God wants to use that as a foundation. And Jesus is praying that God would do such a rich work within us and this union with Christ that we have, that it would begin to flow and have horizontal effects, that our union with Christ would bring a unity in Christ that's meant to baffle the world. This is what Jesus prayed. I'm gonna highlight a few other things here now, the same verses we've been looking at. But verse 21, he says, may they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one. Third time in there that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Jesus is praying as the cycle moves that our union with Christ then would bring about a unity in Christ, a supernatural oneness among the church. He's not talking about unity with everybody. He just said back in John 15, the world's going to hate you. So we can't be unified with the world, right? We know that. But what he's praying for is a unity among the brothers and sisters of Christ in the church. The type of unity that as people would look at it, they'd say, only God could do that. Only God could bring together that group of people and make them one. I asked you before, like if we could eavesdrop into your prayer life, like what would we find out that you value? Can I ask you like, When was the last time you prayed for the unity of our church? I'm just gonna be real with you guys. As a a pastor here at this church, I've never lost an hour of sleep fearful that our church is gonna fold up shop and close the doors because of the opposition of the outside world. I've never worried about that. I've never lost an hour of sleep about that. If anything ever causes me a sleepless night or a very early morning, it's the fear of what God is doing here crumbling from within because of brokenness between brothers and sisters in Christ. We think about that and pray about that all the time. That somehow unity, which was meant to be like our greatest testimony to the world, would actually become like our greatest danger. Sadly, where we sit. And a few weeks ago, maybe you guys remember this, as we were walking through John 15, Jake highlighted like the two types of Christians and how they kind of play out in, the, in a world of hardships. Remember that? The obnoxious Christian and the anonymous Christian. It was kind of interesting as we were diving into this text as an elder team talking about like the sources of disunity among us, like those two categories of Christians, like the two ditches that we can fall into emerged again. It's like, wow, the sources of disunity are also pretty similar and aligned with those two categories of Christians. So I want to go back to that because one of these sources of disunity I think is pretty apparent and we'd go, oh yeah, I knew that one. And one of these is a little bit more subtle and I want to draw attention to both. But the first source of disunity among the church, I would say comes from the obnoxious Christian who's dying on the wrong hill. The obnoxious Christian who's dying on the wrong hill. Here's what I mean, guys. It's very, very obvious 
that we have to walk an important line as Christians, that there are things that we absolutely have to part company with people over. Like if you want to walk down a path of sin and get me to approve of it, that's a hill I'm going to die on. If you want me to deny the truthfulness of, of God's word or the exclusivity that salvation is only in Christ or the hope of heaven or the realities of hell, if you want me to deny those things, mm -mm. nope. Those are hills we're going to die on. But I hold those things in contrast with these things. Hill's not worth dying on. Things like interpretive issues and differences over the age of the earth or like how and when Jesus is going to come back. I mean, there's just godly people on both sides of these arguments and all over the place that are saying different things that are all biblically saturated. I'm not gonna die on those hills. Or even the hill of like how we should educate our children, public school versus private versus homeschooling. Like I've shoved my own foot in my mouth on that one. I'm like, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not, not dividing company over that. Or even what it looks like to follow Philippians 2 when we should look after not only our own interests, but the interests of those around us and how that applies into an age of COVID. People want to throw that around like a sword and get real strong-armed and, and say that this is absolutely what we should do. I'm like, I don't know. But I'm not going to divide over that. Or here's another hill I'm not going to die on. A passion for the next generation. Guys, I love the vision of our church that we want to reach the next generation. I absolutely love that. That's why I'm here. It's why I'm at this church and not another church. I love what we do and what we're passionate about. But it doesn't bother me at all that the church up the street doesn't have that same passion. And that actually they may have a passion for something different. Not reach the next generation, but some other crowd. And I go, that's great. Actually, I think diversity helps in that regard. But I think what sadly happens, guys, is we can get so like inward focused and so excited about what God's doing among us that we start drawing these odd dividing lines that we should have never drawn. And here's what's so frustrating. I all of a sudden start thinking that like that church across the road or up the hill or whatever is an enemy of mine. Because who is our enemy? Satan, we have one, it's very simple. I'm not gonna make enemies out of people that are not my enemies. But we can do that. My competitive nature can do that. All these just stupid sins that live in me can do that. I'm not, I don't wanna do that. And what's been good for me is just to stop and to just pray, to drive past other churches and to pray that God would fill these buildings with people who are passionate for Jesus. As long as Christ is proclaimed in that environment, I'm thrilled. But a lot of disunity stems from obnoxious Christians, myself included, dying on the wrong hills. But I want to go after another category, another source of disunity that comes from the anonymous Christian. And you maybe go, wow, how does this fit in? Here's what I mean, guys. Because I think that the vast majority of our disunity as a church, and I'm talking about like us as a church, is actually the result of a lot of anonymous Christians who quietly claim Jesus and also very loosely claim affiliation with the family of God. 
it's hard for us to be united as brothers and sisters if you're not one claiming to be one and if you're not willing to walk with me in committed relationship. I think one of the lies that our world wants to tell us is that unity is actually the result of like uber tolerance, unconditional affirmation. I just approve of everything that you do and we just have these like superficial like kumbaya relationships. Guys, that's not true. I think one of the lies we can believe is to think that Unity is a product of like an absence of conflict. And that's essentially what unity is. Unity is just the absence of conflict. That's not true. Think about your life. Think of, like an example from my life, I guess, my best friends in this whole world are the people that will say the hardest things to me. Like if you want an example of this, Wednesday morning at 6 a.m., y'all are welcome to show up. We can't fit all of you in that room, but you're all welcome to be a fly on the wall for our elder meetings. There will be some elder meetings that if you were a fly on the wall listening in, you'd go, wow, these guys, I don't think they love each other at all. And nothing could be further from the truth because we're willing to hold on to truth and to speak truth to each other, but yet at the same time, it's grace and truth. Guys, God wants to build a unity among our church that's supernatural, and that unity is built on committed relationship with Christ and committed relationship with one another that is defined by a lifestyle of both grace and truth, committed to walking to that with each other, committed to Christ, committed to each other, and committed to walking in grace and truth. When I think about unity and what God wants us to have, I can't help but think about 1 Corinthians 13, right? The great love chapter. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not easily angered. Keeps no records of wrongs. It always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. You guys know that? The most common context that we hear that passage read is at weddings, right? Which is funny because it's actually not written for soon-to-be-married couples or even couples at all. When Paul wrote those words, he was talking about how we're supposed to love each other as a church. But if I ever teach that passage at a wedding and walk through 1 Corinthians 13, the way that I'll often teach is I'll say, I'll read that whole list of descriptions on what love is. And I'll say, you know, it's interesting. A super long list on what love is. And actually Paul leaves out one important description of what love is. Love like that is. And everybody's mind goes, man, pretty long list. What did he leave out? patient, kind, doesn't envy, doesn't boast, not arrogant. What do you leave out? I say that type of love, that's a choice. That's a spirit-empowered choice. Because I'm telling you right now, there is not a single person in the whole world that wakes up every day and is patient, is kind, keeps no records of wrongs, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Nobody wakes up ever with that as just the overflow of their love. That type of love is a choice. It's why my marriage to my wife is not built on whether she's pretty or not, or whether she deserves it or not, or, oh, we have kids, so I better love you. It's not built on that. No, I, I love my wife because I promised I would love my wife. I told God I would. And when I married my wife and we joined together and we exchanged vows of commitment to one another, that brought us together. And one of the things that was true in the midst of that is we knew right then and there, divorce is not an option. Unity is the same thing. It's a choice. 
And the sooner that we get to the spot as a church and go, disunity is not an option. It's just not. The sooner we get to that spot and begin to look around this room and go, so do I have brokenness with anybody in this room? Do I have brokenness with anybody that's a brother or sister in this world? You need to deal with that today. Or if you are the anonymous Christian that's sitting out there quietly claiming Christ and loosely affiliating with some people and holding everybody at arm's length, pretending like this is your family coming in out of here and calling this your home, but like you don't go any deeper than that, stop. Can I just ask you, who are you pursuing this type of unity with? The type of unity where you are able to say the hard things to them and you welcome it back from them to you. And you're not like holding some like conditional level to that. Like, well, but if you say something that really offends me, that's where our relationship's over. But you actually look at a person that's like, man, I love that you both like love me and also say the hard things. I, I to you. and it's committed. Disunity has multiple sources. But the way out of disunity, guys, is a choice. And it's a choice that we as a church have to prayerfully make and surrender ourselves to. That the work that Jesus is doing within us would begin to flow out of us. That the world would then see this supernatural unity, this beautiful work, this incredible richness of diversity of stories and all that that God has woven together and made into one church and now he's dwelling richly among them. The world would look at that and go, that's crazy. Because God wants to do a work within us that would express itself in unity so that the world around us would notice and seek Jesus. You can put that cycle back up one more time, Holly, just to see how these three things come together. Guys, one of my favorite stories of doing high school ministry was I was working with this junior in high school, at the time he was a junior in high school, who was absolutely breaking his parents' hearts with a decision that he was making in life. Absolutely just devastating. Pursuing a lifestyle of just rebellion, drugs, you name it, variety of things. And it was interesting, like we would he'd keep showing up. Like he'd keep showing up on Wednesday nights which is when we had our youth ministry time. And then like we would get together for coffee and like regularly sit down. And it was like apparent that he didn't want to be there, but like kept showing up. But I knew his parents weren't making him come. So I remember just one time I got kind of frustrated with him. And I'm just like, hey, why are you still here? Like, why are you still even showing up? It's clear you don't want any of this. Like, why are you still here? And these were his words back to me. He said, I cannot deny that God has changed my parents' lives. If there's like a life aspiration that I have, it would be that. That my kids would maybe like want to deny Jesus someday and can't. Like they struggle to because they look at Stacy and I, like our lives and go, there's no other way to describe my parents and they say they are who they are by the grace of God. I want to deny Jesus, I can't. Guys, wouldn't it be cool if the church had that reputation that those parents had and that kid's mind? 
I want nothing to do with them, and yet at the same time, I can't stop looking at it. This unity is meant to be a catalyst for more people coming to know Christ. Here's a couple of so that's. Verse 21, all this would happen so that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 23, that the world may know that you sent me. All this is to happen so that people would come to know Jesus. So church, if you're amazed at 100 people gathering in Cincinnati for a church plan, or if you're amazed at what God's doing here is we'll watch 19 people get baptized, just imagine what God could do, would do, if we could grow in this particular area of our church life. And it's too narrow just to think about us just as Candeo Church. Like, we got to think broader than that. But I don't want to overwhelm you today. I just want to simply ask, what is the role that God wants you to play in bringing about the unity of his people? I had this conversation with my oldest son a few weeks ago. I said, hey, Jacoby, there's three decisions you can make at this point, and two of them are wrong. If somebody around you is making a bad choice, you can make a bad choice by doing the wrong thing. That's obvious, right? Doing the wrong thing is the wrong thing. That would be a wrong choice. You can do nothing, which is also the wrong choice. Even though you're not doing the bad thing, like the fact that you're just sitting there doing nothing, is still wrong. Because in these three things, there's actually only one thing that's the right thing to do. And it's not to do the wrong thing, it's not to do nothing, but it's to stand up and to do what's right. I said, Jacoby, that's gonna be my expectation for you as a man and as a man of God. That you don't just do the wrong thing or you do not do the wrong thing, but you actually do the right thing. Church, what is the role that God has called you to play? And are you gonna do the right thing? Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the delight that we have in you. That you have brought us in in relationship, like relationship with you, like that doesn't even define like, like what we have now, that we are in you and you and us dwelling richly. And God, I thank you for your word and that challenges us and calls us, Lord. And I pray that if there is brokenness in this room or if there is a number of anonymous Christians in this room that are holding others at arm length, that we would stop doing that and pursue what is true unity, what is true depth, what is true delight to you and that you would do a work among us that would then empower a work around us and through us. Amen. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.